After four years of on and off preaching through the Gospel of Luke, more often than not preaching through the Gospel of Luke, today we are concluding our study of this Gospel. So we'll be reading for our sermon text Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. But in preparation for that, will you turn in your Old Testaments to the prophet Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. Some 550 or more years before Christ, the Lord made his will made uh, made his will known to Daniel who was in Babylon one of those exiles about whom we just sang I'd like to read Daniel 7 verses 1 through 14 hear the word of God in the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. 
the court sat, and books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And with these words of prophecy of the coming of our Lord and the kingdom of God, let us turn to Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. Luke 24, 50 to 53. Speaking of Jesus, of course, Luke records, and he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, for we have read some things here that are very dark to us and difficult to understand. We pray that we would rest in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and know that all of the scriptures speak of him. We pray that your spirit would now illumine our minds, that these words on the page would become to us life, and health, security, prosperity, all the things we crave. Grant these things, we pray, for your greater glory, the building up of our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. In your leisure hours, you may have noticed how certain books and movies end in these cliffhanger situations, or with some other clearly unfinished business that virtually announces to the audience that an exciting sequel is on the way as soon as they can get it into movies and theaters, as soon as they can get it into the bookstores. Movies that sometimes become um, actual cinema franchises, like Star Wars, and many more since. You may remember from Star Wars, you may remember, uh, actually, I don't think any of you are old enough here to remember when the first movies came out back in the late 70s and early 80s, but you may remember if you've seen the second movie, the final scene of that second movie back in the 70s, 
Han Solo being frozen in that vat of whatever it was, only to be rescued early in the next movie that came out in 1983. And the authors of books will sometimes do this too, these cliffhangers. They'll end with an ending that isn't really an ending. Think of the Bible itself. The book of Genesis ends where? It ends with the children of Israel, not in the land that was promised to Abraham, but in Egypt. And that's a problem. Exodus then opens with those children of Israel still in Egypt and ends not in the promised land, but at Mount Sinai, somewhere in the southern wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. Leviticus likewise. In the fourth book, that of Numbers, they finally pull up stakes, leave Sinai, and move on toward the promised land. And then finally, in his fifth book, Moses has them poised on the threshold of that land flowing with milk and honey, the land promised well over 400 years earlier to Abraham and his seed. So there are many books, but there's one grand adventure that they're telling, one continuous story of the mighty hand and outstretched arm of our covenant God, the Almighty. And here at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we have the same sort of thing happening again. it leaves us with another cliffhanger. Just think through these four little verses, 50 through 53. What are they saying? Well, they're saying, Jesus ascends into heaven. Everyone who was there saw it with their own eyes. And afterwards, everyone went home again and was happy. That's not the way you end an epic story like the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've invested already, by my count, 128 sermons in this glorious story that Luke tells. Volume 1, this gospel we've been studying for the last four years, Volume 1 is clearly setting the stage for Volume 2, which in Luke's case, of course, is the New Testament book of Acts. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ lays the foundation for understanding what Jesus calls in verse 49 the promise of the Father, which of course is the coming of the person and work of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in his church. The great commission of the risen Christ to his apostles right before his ascension, that wasn't simply issued and then forgotten. It didn't fall by the wayside. That great commission was afterward obeyed to the great blessing of men and nations and the resounding glory of God. That great commission is going to take these same young men and others like them to the very ends of the earth. Let's look at 
this final brief paragraph of Luke's Gospel. The first thing you may notice about it is its brevity, isn't it? Luke seems like he's coming close to the end of the scroll that he was writing on. So in the superintending providence of the Holy Spirit, Luke now has to measure his words very carefully in order to fit the available space. Now we who ordinarily read our literature, uh, we, we who don't read our literature from scrolls, might not think of this. But running out of space to write was a very practical consideration. It was a, a real constraint upon ancient writers because a papyrus roll of the day averaged only about 31 or 32 feet in length, all rolled up. So if you had more to say than could be fit into that available space, you had to continue your story on another scroll. That's why not only Luke's Gospel and his Acts of the Apostles, but also many other ancient works came out in installment form, in multiple books or scrolls. It's even reported that a man by the name of Callimachus, who was the librarian of the great library of Alexandria, Egypt, Callimachus would often say, Mega Biblion, Mega Kekon. A big book is a big nuisance. And when you're cataloging, as he did, as the librarian, when you're cataloging and shelving all of these books all day, you quickly feel the truth of that. A big book is a big nuisance. Well, these two longest books of the New Testament the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, each one of them would have completely filled a papyrus. Some 30 feet long or so. Would have filled up the scroll, and both of them end somewhat abruptly, don't they? When you think of it, both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts end a little abruptly. The first one describing all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and the second one describing what he continued to do and to teach in the person of his Holy Spirit after his ascension. So that's what we have in Luke volume 1 and volume 2, his gospel and the Acts. And while we're talking about space, let's think of another gospel, too. Think of John's gospel. The apostle John felt this constraint of space at the end of his gospel. His next to the last verse of his gospel in chapter 21 certifies its authenticity. And then the very last verse of his gospel, in that last last verse, we can almost see him writing off into the tiny space of the scroll that he had left. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself wouldn't contain 
the books that were written. So why am I telling you all this about papyrus and their length and lack of space? Really, for two reasons. First, it helps explain, I think, in practical terms, the brevity of this gospel account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Extraordinary as this event is, we would certainly expect uh, some degree of elaboration on it, wouldn't we? But that has to wait until the opening lines of Volume 2, Luke's second book. Furthermore, much more importantly, the close of this gospel and the opening of its sequel, the book of Acts, it shows us the exalted position from which the Lord Jesus Christ reigns as sovereign king over all men and nations today. Dear ones, make no mistake. He is reigning. He does reign over the nations today. These things that we've been studying for the past four years, the days of his humiliation, they're behind him now. They're behind us now. They're behind the world and the universe that he made now. The days of his humiliation are past. And the church today remembers with joyous gratitude what he once endured on our behalf. But now, now, let's learn to put both Christmas and the cross behind us because he is no longer a helpless baby lying in a manger. He's no longer within the reach of Satan's temptations. He's no longer the willing victim of the cruelty of men. Those things are past. His resurrection and ascension to the throne in heaven have ushered in a new day, a new age, a brave new world. So today, Jesus' human nature including, of course, his glorious resurrection body, it is seated upon the throne of heaven. And from that throne, he sovereignly governs and guides and chastens and disciplines and subdues the nations that even now rage against him. Jesus reigns today. Here we have an account of his going there. And the book of Acts then goes on to describe how from heaven he reigns today in the person and by the agency of his Holy Spirit. So, time marches on. And it marches on not in any kind of random haphazard kind of way. it marches on under his guidance, under his providence, time marches on. What is human history after all but one long, glorious, sustained account of the judgment, the wrath, the goodness, the grace, 
of Almighty God and his Christ. That's what history is. All of it, the rise and fall of tyrannies, these wars that we endure, plagues, pandemics, famines, and everything else besides, let's come to see these things, one and all of them, as the righteous judgments of the sovereignly reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The desolations amid which this gospel of redemption is to be preached to the world from his throne in heaven, he is orchestrating all of human history for his own glory. And Psalm 46 summons us to think and see the world this way, doesn't it? Psalm 46, come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, he says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. History is his story. Briefly, in the time remaining to us, let's consider, first of all, the Lord's final appearances in glory. And then secondly, his ascension into glory. And finally, some of the applications of his glory. First, the appearances of our glorified Lord Jesus Christ between the day of his resurrection from the dead and that of his victorious ascension into heaven. Taking all the eyewitness testimony into account, we need to understand that our risen Lord Jesus Christ remained on for a while not in spirit only, but bodily, remained on for a while with his disciples. Not constantly day in and day out as before, but appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. These proofs, Luke tells us, were many and convincing. They testify that he wasn't going to leave them as orphans. He wasn't going to leave them guessing. He wasn't going to leave them with any doubt whatsoever in their minds about the things that they had seen and heard. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Already we've begun to see this, haven't we? Think of Jesus' appearances to Mary Magdalene. And the other women that first morning in Jerusalem. Think of his appearance that same afternoon to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. His appearance to Simon Peter that same day. And then his appearance to the gathered church that first Lord's Day evening. Not to mention his appearance to them again a week later. There's absolutely no room for doubt. His humiliation and sufferings are behind him. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is gloriously alive, risen bodily from the dead. When the disciples finally return home from Jerusalem after the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, he meets with them again on a number of occasions up in Galilee. The final chapter of John's Gospel details the best-known account, I think, of that Galilean meeting on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Back where it all started in Galilee. Well, as Pentecost approaches, that is the Feast of First Fruits, 50 days after the Passover, the disciples once again leave their home, make their way to Jerusalem, arriving there in plenty of time. And once again, in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus appears to them. He gathers them together, in fact, and commands them not to leave Jerusalem. Because this is where it's all going to happen. Not many days from now. Jerusalem is where it's going to happen. This is where you'll receive the promise of my Father after my departure. Now let's consider that departure. Let's consider his ascension into glory itself. The description of it Luke offers is so wondrous. And yet, as I've said before, and as you've seen, it is so brief. Now bear in mind that Luke himself is a physician. He's a physician. He's a man of science. He's a man who takes in all the available evidence, thinks it, th thinks it through, and makes a diagnosis. I can only imagine that a man like Luke must have been frustrated beyond words to be running out of space to expand on something as extraordinary as the Lord's bodily ascension into heaven. But of course, God is the God of providence, and providentially Luke's available space seems to be running out. So from what little we have on the Lord's ascension into glory, what is it that Luke con considered essential that he communicate to us in the last couple of inches of his parchment? What was essential that we know? Principally two things. The relevant where it took place and the relevant how. As for the where, the Lord's ascension took place neither in Galilee nor in Jerusalem proper. Because from Jerusalem, he led them out as far as Bethany. That's where it happened. Bethany. The little town a couple miles east of Jerusalem. Toward the sunrise. And the trip there, as he was leading them back to Bethany, getting there, led him and the eleven through familiar territory that was absolutely drenched 
with personal memories for them. Because that walk to Bethany took them through the eastern gate of the city. It took them across the brook Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, past Gethsemane. It brought them, that walk, brought them to a village of sacred associations. Bethany had always been to them the one place they could always count on a warm welcome, warm hospitality, because this was the village of those two sisters, Mary, the quiet Mary, and the bustling Martha. This was the town where Jesus raised Lazarus, their brother, from the dead. He led them out as far as Bethany. That's where his ascension took place. As to the how, I should probably remind you, first of all, that the secret things belong to the Lord. Always let us bear that in mind. The secret things belong to the Lord. The ascension of the Lord bodily into heaven as his disciples look on has proven to be yet another stumbling block to the unbelieving. I have heard people mention this as a, um, an impediment to their believing. Perhaps you have too, from, from people that you know. But Luke has already reminded us how many times in his gospel that nothing shall be impossible with God. Nothing shall be impossible with God. So let's not get tangled up in things that we can't explain by natural laws, ordinary natural laws, or by the naturalistic cosmology of Carl Sagan and others with a naturalistic worldview. Let's not get caught up in that kind of thinking. Let's rather content ourselves with the solemn testimony of the multiple eyewitnesses who were there When Luke considered what he considered far more essential than the physics of it was the fact that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he lifted up his hands and blessed us. That's the how. More than anything else, that one fact had to be fit into the very last inch of Luke's scroll. It came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. So mission accomplished, he ascends into heaven not with tears of sorrow, not with a scowl of disappointment, not with a look of disapproval on these hard-headed young men who so often let him down over the past three years. Not that way at all. The Son of Man disappeared into the clouds, ascending heaven's throne to receive from the Ancient of Days an everlasting mediatorial kingdom. He went there not shaking his fist at those he left behind, but blessing us. Blessing us. That benediction he left is the priceless legacy. He leaves his church.
Finally, to conclude our four-year study of Luke's gospel, let me suggest to you some applications of his glory. What this all means for us and for the world today. First of all, it means that God is true to his word. God is true to his word from Genesis 3.15 onward. He's been promising a redeemer. And now finally, book after book after book after book of the Bible, finally, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. True to his word, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he's kept his ancient promise to redeem us and to bring us back into the sweet fellowship that once was ours. Sweet fellowship with our maker. Second, it means God is presently redeeming lost and perishing sinners by the faithful proclamation and hearing of this gospel. Faith comes by hearing these things we've been studying for the past four years hearing them with hearts and minds that are made open to them by your own sense of desperate need for such a Savior as this one. He's presently at work redeeming sinners. Third, it means that Jesus Christ, the crucified, who was once dead and buried, now risen and gloriously ascended. This is God's king. He is God's king. This is the one appointed to reign over the nations now and forever. In your free time this afternoon, consider such passages as Psalm 2. Psalm 110. Daniel 7, the 19th chapter of the Revelation. We'll be singing the 47th Psalm very shortly. That Psalm not only sums it all up for us, but then it summons us to respond. God is ascended with a shout, the Lord with trumpeting. Sing praises unto God. Sing praise. Sing praises to our King. For God is King of all the earth. Sing praise with skillfulness. God rules the nations. God sits on his throne of holiness. Assemble men of Abram's God. Come people, princes nigh. The shields of earth belong to God. He is exalted high. I'm sure that you remember that Luke's story began with an angel's proclamation 
of good news, of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. It begins with great joy. It ends here with great joy. And in between the two lies the glorious person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you with all our hearts for your faithfulness to your word. Thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to endure what he endured, to teach what he taught, to be the example that he was and is to his people, and above all, to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you that we therefore can walk no longer as slaves to sin, no longer in the darkness of our prison cell, but he has led us out. He has proclaimed liberty to the captive. He has done all that he began and set himself to do. We pray, Lord, that we might appropriate these things by faith, make them our own, dwell on them often, and thereby grow more and more into his very image, the new man born by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, brought to glory in time by the Spirit. We humbly ask these things in his precious name. Amen.